Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Zack Zucker is a clown-based comedian and actor who splits his time between Los Angeles and London, where he's become known as the ringmaster for Stamptown, a variety show and production company he created that has helped develop and bring other shows from the United States, the UK, and Europe to the Edinburgh Fringe and beyond. He also teaches clown workshops around Los Angeles. Born in New York and raised in Chicago, Zucker talked to me about his own path, which began with classes at Second City while still in high school, then moving to L.A. at 18, where he parlayed an internship at the UCB Theater into an internship with Sasha Baron Cohen. But it was his next step, spending two years studying at Ecole Philippe Gaulier in France, that set Zucker on his current path. It's where he met his comedy partner, Britain's Got Talent winner Vigo Venn, which led him to The Fringe, where he created his alter ego, New York's greatest bad comedian, Jack Tucker. Jack Tucker is getting his first solo run off-Broadway this winter at the Soho Playhouse in New York City. And Zucker talked to me about how it's going so far, trying to introduce Jack to American comedy club audiences. Plus... He offers some advice for Americans thinking about making their way to the Unreal Fringe now. There's a lot to get to, so let's get to it! I want to get into everything, but last things first. Is this your first extended uh, New York City run solo? Yes, so this is my first time. I've only ever done the show in New York twice. I did it once in 2019, as part of the New York uh, Comedy Festival at Bella, at uh, Union Hall. And then I did one preview just for them to make sure that they liked me uh, last November. And it went well. And we've got we've got two months to start and hopefully we can keep on going. So why did you decide then for your first extended one person show to do it as Jack Tucker and not Zach Zucker? Um, a few reasons. One, I feel like the Jack Tucker show is just such an exciting live experience. And I haven't seen much like it around the world, you know, and I, and I feel like especially in America, this clown approach with all these other performance elements, I felt like it was a nice blend of theater and physical, you know, regular just physical theater, more of a theatrical experience, comedy, you know, sort of audience uh, participation or, you know, audience interaction. And um, I also, to be honest, you know, I still believe that that show has some life in it and I would like to maximize it before I move on. And I think I can't give up on old Tucky just yet. I've got to give him that product run. We got to get that special. We got to do everything we can so he can support his family and support his little boy. Even though the other show is a proper industry showcase for you, (laughs) you want people to see the other side of yourself first. That was part of it because I had to talk with my team about that. They're like, which show would you want to do? And uh, each of them are are as logistically uh, uh, annoying as the other, and that it involves each show involves three people. So three, and the other two individuals are people who also have their full careers uh, in a completely separate field. So it, there was going to be a logistical nightmare no matter what. But I just felt like I, I yeah, I I love the show that I did as myself. But I feel like that show right now is a if you know me is less of a a fully complete show and it's more of like just a really fun time to laugh. And you saw one of the earlier versions of it and it's definitely, uh, it's definitely grown since you saw it in Edinburgh 2022. But mm-hmm. I feel like Tucker while keeping that same play is a full show because I just had the time, you know, I, by the time we, we took that to Edinburgh the first year, 
that it went, we had already had a hundred hours under our belt. Whereas the spectacular industry showcase to this day, I've still only done it like 40, 45 times. So I still got ways to go, but it is on my to-do list to finish that. (laughs) Okay. So, so let's, let's go back then. Where did, where did this all start? What do you consider your origin story? Is it perhaps getting kicked out of three Hebrew schools before you reached your bar mitzvah? Is that is that the origin story for, you know, there was a few origin stories. One of them was I remember my dad and his friends telling me Andrew Dice Clay jokes when I was a kid. And I thought it was the funniest thing ever. So that was like always in my nucleus. I also loved Sasha Baron Cohen growing up. I used to work for his production company. And obviously those in real life characters where it's like, do we know if this person's fake or not? That had a big influence on me. Um, But it really kind of came in 2018 or 2017 when I was at the Soho Theater with Johnny, my my tech and director for the show, and we saw Tim Heidecker and Greg Turkington split an hour, and the two of them doing their stand-up personas, Tim's stand-up persona and Greg is Neil Hamburger, right. just blew our minds. We couldn't believe what we were watching. I remember I was watching them the whole time, like, mouth open, looking at Johnny. We're punching each other and pushing each other. And around the same time, uh, as I was performing with my comedy duo, Zach and Vigo, that was our primary focus back then. People weren't booking us because they said what we did wasn't comedy and we were, you know, we were difficult to book. And I was looking around at all these terrible comedians that were getting booked. So we're like, fuck it, let's have fun playing a bad comedian and mm-hmm. let's see where this goes. And, you know, I can mark down the chain of events from the first time we tried it, but it just kept snowballing. And then we booked ourselves this Australian tour and, and went for it. Right. But that's that's kind of more Jack's origin story. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. That's so for you, okay, so so the Hebrew school thing. I can't distinguish the difference between me and Jack right now. But the Hebrew school thing, so your bar mitzvah is when you're turned 13. Yeah. What were you doing as a tween to get kicked out of three different schools? Is it uh, is it criminal? Is it civil? Is it... Like the Catholic Church, where they just have to shuttle you off to a different temple. What ha- what happened? It was to me. I, I, this may come as a surprise, um, but my I, I was a very hyperactive kid who had a very low attention span for things that he was not interested in. If I focused, I loved it, and if I didn't like it, or if I ever felt like uh, whoever was the authority that was in charge wasn't either taking it seriously or didn't deserve to be there. I would always challenge authority. And that has been something that has uh, maintained itself throughout my life. But as a kid who was a product of South Park and Jackass and hip hop, who thought he was a rapper living in the Jewish suburbs of Chicago, I, um, my first time I got, I just, I hated the, I think it was the cantor in our converse in our congregation. It's, it was called congregation. Solel, and I believe the woman just yelled at me a few times and I think the straw that did it was I went up onto the bima, which is, you know, the part of the, the temple in the synagogue when you're all in prayer. And it's like kind of the raised platform that the rabbi or the cantor and everybody will read the Torah from. And I went into the back room where the Torah was and there was microphones in there. And I had my new Walkman with my new 50 Cent Get Rich or Die Trying album. And I just thought it'd be funny to play the album through the speakers in the middle of the congregation. And so I think we had, you know, I don't know what you heard about me. But I'm a motherfucking P.I.M.P. You know, like, so I I feel like that was number one on top of a bunch. Number two was I went to within a it was a seven. It was an Israeli woman who came to America who taught like eight kids in my friend's basement who they were a bit more um, religious than we were. But Mm -hmm. it was more like, okay, I'm on a stricter leash. And 
I was a sports boy growing up, baseball and basketball, and baseball is my life. And I would sometimes show up in my uniform or show up late from a practice. And me, I hated to be there. And she was always mad that I was late, but I was like, hey, at least my parents were making me show up. And eventually we got into a big fight where I, I blew up and was just very difficult. And I think she actually left <laughs> and she left the country. The third person was, uh-huh. uh, this was more of an Orthodox uh, temple. Uh-huh. And I, um, yeah, that was when I was really in my big prank phase. So I was just like doing pranks to all the teachers. And then they eventually were like, you just, just, here's your portion. Here's what you need to study. Go do this on your own with a tutor and we'll, we'll take credit for the bar mitzvah, but you don't have to come here anymore. So this was all happening in the suburbs of Chicago. They sure were. This is like age me, like age seven to 13. Uh, Cubs or White Sox? But I was born in New York. So I took my sports or half my sports roots from New York. And okay. I, the first baseball game I ever went to was the New York Yankees 2000 Subway Series. And I went to the first game in the series. My dad was a Mets fan. His brother was a, or a Yankees fan. My grandpa was a Cardinals fan. And I said, whoever wins this game, that's who I'm going to root for. And I had a Yankees hat and a Mets jersey. I wore my <laughs> pants, my cleats. I had a Cardinals sweatband. And it was the game that Roger Clemens threw the bat at Mike Piazza. And I had no idea what was going on, but it was this whole crazy thing. And I'm, the, the Yankees ended up winning, so I ended up becoming a Yankee fan. Are you still a Yankee fan? Um. It's funny for someone whose life was baseball and I got a letter to play baseball at Harvard and I like should have gone if I didn't do this. Okay. Um, But I have completely like I can maybe name 15 players in the league now. So I still root for them casually, but I've become much more of a basketball fan these years. So this is kind of getting back to your origin story then, because you could have played baseball at Harvard and instead you went second city to UCB to clowning. Yep. So I, I was in acting class my junior year because I needed a fine arts credit and I heard it was an easy A. So I was like, sure. And of course, leave it to me to get a B plus. So I didn't mm-hmm. even get the easy A that I was, I was promised. And then the next year I needed to take another class to boost my GPA. And I was like, well, that acting thing was fine. So I, because I, the first semester I did was acting one, second was acting two. The third year was automatically acting three, which was the advanced class. And day one, the teacher pulled me aside and he was like, hey, you're a popular kid. People are going to listen to you. If you don't take this seriously, everyone's going to fuck around. So if you're here to fuck around, get out of my class. And I was like, whoa, uh, sure, I'm in. And I I committed to it and I doubled down. And I loved it so much more than, you know, the way that my basketball and baseball coaches spoke to us. And I felt it was such a beautiful community. And I had had no performance experience or exposure to any of the camaraderie of a show or an ensemble, a crew. And I, I loved it so much that I went and saw a show at Second City for the first time at 17. And in that show, it was called Spoiler Alert, Everybody Dies. It was Tim Robinson, Sam Richardson, Holly Laurent, uh, Timothy Edward Mason, Katie Rich, and I believe Edgar Blackman were the six people that I saw. And I remember Tim specifically being the funniest person I've ever seen in my life. And I signed up for class that night. And slowly but surely, I... I was going, you know, I would, I would do, be in basketball Monday through Saturday. I'd go to Second City on Sundays. And then when baseball season came around, I quit to uh, perform in the Short Play Festival and try my luck at acting. And then, you know, kind of I just moved to L.A. when I was 18 to be a star a month after uh, graduating high school, knowing nobody, having no experience. And, you know, again, can trace it all back to there. So you briefly mentioned working for Sasha Baron Cohen. Yes. What was your job specifically? I was an intern, uh, but I had a lot. But like, more... what kind of intern? Yeah. 
it, it was fun. It was actually a really awesome time. Every day I would come in three or four days a week. The first, I think from like nine to 12, my job was I had like three to five newspaper publications or online you know, publications that I had to read. And I basically had to pick articles to pitch characters, TV ideas or movies off of to the executive's assistants. And then if the assistants liked it, they passed it to the execs. And if they liked it, they'd pass it to Sasha. Mm-hmm. Now, the company was seven people, eight people. So we all saw each other all the time. And Sasha always made a big, like, it was really funny. He'd always be like, don't listen to these idiots. If you have a good idea, come to me. And I was like, okay, sure. You know, just like believing it like that. But um, I got to work on Ali G Resurrection, which was basically him taking old UK Ali G clips and bringing it to FXX. And my job was to watch it and see if Americans thought it was funny and if they would get it. Or like, you know, I would read books and write reports on, you know, if I thought this could be a movie or something. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I got to act in like a, a test shoot for a movie Grimsby that he ended up doing with him and Colin Farrell, which was pretty cool. I got shot. I was a gunman who got shot by the two of them. I got to record some like storyboard voice voiceover with them, you know, kind of like it wasn't like they made it really feel like it wasn't just like, you know, bottom of the barrel work doing tasks or errands that needed to be done. But, you know, I also drove around his parents one day and that was like the scariest moment of my life where I'm like, for the love of God. Do not crash this car right now, you know? But as a naive 18-year-old fresh out of the Chicago suburbs, how do you even know that it's possible to intern for Sasha? So this is where the, the good little Jewish boy who was uh, who was taught networking at a young age was okay. came to play. So I basically, I was interning at UCB as well. I was, I was in a professional acting evening conservatory, Mondays through Fridays. From is Saturday that what they called it before they started paying people? Well, look, <laughs> well, this wasn't, this wasn't UCB. This was somewhere else. Oh, okay. UCB never paid when I was there. They only, only under the new owners are they paying. Exactly. I, I, that, well, we could talk about that one another day as well. Yeah, That's yeah. a whole podcast. Uh, but basically I was interning UCB Saturdays, cleaning toilets for free classes. And Franklin or night, Sunset? Franklin. I helped build Sunset as well. Okay. I was in there painting and building the stages. I, I loved it. I was drinking the Kool-Aid so hard. I was, I was Mr. UCB. I was like unfunny poster boy of a teenager who's taken too many classes too quickly you know but i was but i was positive and people were nice to me even though i was deeply unfunny but my night manager gilly was she was one of the paid interns at sasha's company and she was my night manager and you know a year in she was like hey they're looking for somebody would you want to apply it i was like yeah of course and coincidentally at the same time philippe gallier my future clown teacher was coming to Los the, Angeles. the french clown teacher French clown teacher, Philippe Gaulier, and he was coming to L.A. for the first time in 20 years. And my brain was like, let me take this workshop so I have something to talk about in the meeting so I could be like, hey, I also am studying with your guy. I thought this was just like a networking tactic. And I didn't know what clowning was at all. I, I truly had zero idea what to expect. And I walked in there and it absolutely blew my mind. It was the hardest I'd ever laughed. I couldn't believe this. You know, I just the stuff that he was saying. Um, and coincidentally, in the middle of that, I ended up uh, having my interview on the phone and I told them. And it also turned out that one of the assistants to the executives was from my hometown and he was best friends with my high school best friend's older brother. So I was like, OK, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> We're helping each other out with Jewish geography in action. Yeah. And then uh, I ended up meeting Sasha on the last day of performances there. And he was like, so I hear you're going to work for me. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. And got the job. And then I was there for six to eight months. And. I said to him maybe halfway through, I was like, hey, this is my dream job, but I really want to go to Gullier. 
I think I would, because, you know, I like to work in production, but I, I'm a performer. I want to be an actor. And he was like, you should go. So it was the best thing I ever did. And I think you'll love it. And so I left and I was only supposed to do three months. And I think three weeks in, I signed up for the whole two years. And that's where you met Vigo. That's where I met Vigo. That's where I met Vigo. That's where I met Johnny. It's where I met so many of the, uh, that's where I met Stefan the vampire. I met so many people there. <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. He's, well, actually, I met Stefan through Vigo, but then I sent him to Goliath. But I met him, you know, through all of this. And, you know, the, the way that the clowns have all assembled and, and uh, congregated over the years is another hell of a story. Okay, but but this this teenage version of you in L.A., 18 to 20, or 18 to 19, and then you go spend 19 yep. to 21 in France, that's all before Dr. Brown shows up in L.A.? Yeah, I mean, I, I had known of him because I was clued into the fringe scene a bit. And obviously, as a Gaulier alum as well, who was maybe there like, because I was at Gaulier 10 years ago, which is crazy. Uh, and he was maybe there 17 years ago, 18 years ago, 15, something like this. H- him officially coming to the Lyric, I remember meeting with him when he was going to go to the Lyric, like uh, back in 2015. And okay. I, met so, yeah. Bill in 20, I met him in 2014. I, I took his workshop in LA in September 2014. Okay. So yeah, so when when Goliath visited, there was no LA clown scene as it is in 2024. No, there there was um, the clown school, which was run by a guy called David Bridell, who I believe is now the head of like USC theater. Okay, um, and so he he was he was running what was this offshoot the clown school. I know John Gilkey had Wet the Hippo, and there was no it was all improv and sketch you know improv and sketch that was the dominant years of ucb io nerdist all that all that stuff okay so you spend two years in france you meet vigo and then 2015 is when you do your first fringe in edinburgh oh yeah and and i don't know if you know that origin story but me vigo and our buddy sammy abu warda we met up and we had like a fringe we posted in our in our Gaulier Facebook group, how retro. And we went, hey, guys, if anyone wants to meet later tonight at the cafe by the train station, we're going to go over this process of what the fringe is. And me, I had only heard of fringe because I saw in Thomas Middleditch's bio on his <laughs> UCB page that he did improvise Shakespeare Company at the Edinburgh fringe, you know, Edinburgh. <laughs> I didn't know what it was called. And and I was like, oh, that seems like a cool thing. And mm-hmm. everyone in the UK, it, they have more of the culture to do it, obviously, because, you know, so many people at Goliath are from the UK and Australia, and they go on to do the Fringe. And so I was like, yeah, sure, let me go to this meeting. So it was me, Vigo, and Sammy, and we're talking about what we wanted to do and what type of shows we wanted to make. And Vigo was like, I want to do an improv and sketch and clown show. And Sammy already had a group. And I was like, oh, hey, Vigo, maybe me and you should do a show together. And I said this to him twice. And not only did he not answer, he pretended he couldn't hear me. Because he, he didn't want to work with me because I was so unfunny at school. And Vigo was like the funniest guy at school. And <laughs> it wasn't until the day of registration that all of the people he was supposed to be with dropped out. And all the people that I was supposed to work with dropped out. So it was just the two of us left by default in true clown roulette fashion. And so we looked at each other and I was like, well, I guess it's me and you, buddy. Having never performed on stage together, we hadn't really hung out so much. And we were like, what should we call ourselves? And we're like, let's, I guess, Zach and Vigo. And we went, should we come up with a name? And we went one, two, three. I said Thunder. He said Flop. And Zach and Vigo Thunderflop was born. So what was Thunderflop? Thunderflop was, man, it was a great show. It's crazy. That's nine years old now. That show was just a really fun celebration of two idiots who love this world 
doing their best to make a show for the fringe. So it's like it, it was a it's a clown show. Obviously, we've got dance and music and physical comedy and props and magic and lots of tricks and like it really to this to this day that and Tucker are still my favorite two shows that we made. It's it it feels you know parts of it feels like two guys who made it when they were twenty two and twenty five, but. Uh, and so some of it's a little cringy to perform now at 30 years old. But, you know, it was from the heart of two guys who had nothing to lose and maybe even nothing to gain, but just loved it so much and worked their ass off to try and figure this thing out. Were there any high vis fests in there was? I would like to go on record and say I was the I, I brought the high vis into our into our stuff <laughs> and I bought us, I bought us the first tearaways. <laughs> but it's, it, you know, he knows that and I know that and that's all I need. OK, so so if that's 2015, what in the world is it like in 2023 watching your frenemy Vigo van from Norway win Britain's Got Talent? I mean, that, that's the best feeling in the world. I, I love him with my whole heart. I, I maybe love him more than I've loved anyone in my life. And I tell him this all the time. I, you know, to be, to be with this guy who I have, persevered i don't want to use the word struggled but we have overcome so much adversity and been hit with so much stuff together as you know two international idiots trying their best to maneuver a non-idiots world where you know financially we've been strapped for years you know we've i've shared beds with him like you know in and johnny and dylan where we sleep four sardines and you know two two full mattresses side by side in a storage closet in Australia to make our tours work where we've slept four in a bed with our buddy Jansen and Johnny and, and, and all of us and my brother. And, you know, to go for the guys who had to, you know, pull salsa that we had from a taco truck still in its plastic container to, and get a, a dollar bag of chips that we could split from a Seven Eleven and pull the salsa out and eat chips and salsa from our garbage to see this man win on the biggest stage in Britain and become Britain's funniest man and become immediately financially stable and successful is it's the greatest gift. You know, I, I love, I love him. And I'm, I was crying watching it. Cause I just, it, there was, it wasn't lost on me that he beat a nine and 13 year old. And that was really, really funny, <laughs> but he was great and he was amazing and he deserved it. And I, I, I think sometimes people, not you, other people in my life have like tried to bait me to be like, are you mad or are you jealous? And it's like, no, dude, my best friend's rich and famous now. What do I have to be upset about? This fucking rocks. Right. <laughs> I mean, so awesome. I, I'm just more interested, like, as somebody who's, like, what followed America's Got Talent the whole time. Mm-hmm. Like, comedians don't win. Ventriloquists can win. Yeah. But comedians never win. And especially so, not clowns. Especially not a clown with, like, one gag. No. But it was so funny because he always, the whole time, like, I also didn't even know he was doing it. I found out 15 minutes before he was doing the first audition that he was on. He just didn't tell me. And I was like, dude, they've been approaching us for years. You're not going to tell me about this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, but he, to to see all of, just to see all of that and to see him do this, we were like, okay, well, he's got two numbers. He's got one more time and he's got my name is. So for sure he'll do well in the first two rounds if it goes well. But I don't know what the fuck he's going to do for the finale. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so okay so that's so so Vigo's star takes off recently mm-hmm. meanwhile where does stamp town come into the picture when when did that start or or, or, or how or how did you decide you know i've i've got this clowning stuff what if i just hosted a oh 
wacky variety show. You know, I never, I don't even know. I think this came from the same feeling of the first time we did what would be the earliest versions of this was 2016. I, I hosted actually, a, actually even 2015, I think I booked my first variety show in L.A., it was called Cringely Le Cabaret de Le Monde, which I believe is also not even the correct re- uh, vocabulary friend or grammatical structure <laughs> for like the cabaret of around the world or the world. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what I was trying to say. Um, but then we, me and Vigo hosted some terrible shows together in Underbelly at the Fringe in 2016. And kind of the same way that Tucker grew out of this response of people not booking us, we were having a hard time getting booked on shows. And I was like, well, let's just do it ourselves. I feel like all of the people that we find funny anyways are all the people that don't do stand up in this traditional sense. So, and we're surrounded by all these, you know, amazing talented people. Why don't we just do it like this? And I started booking folks, you know, and Stamtown used to be less of the focus and the focus was more creating hours, but as our schedules have started to change and I've not been making a new hour every year, the way I used to for like five years in a row, I, I, it just, Stamptown just started to pick up and, you know, it could be lonely out there doing shows by yourself. And it's, it's really fun to have a crew of people who you love to go experience and do this thing with. And I'm a big lover of ensemble play. And um, yeah, I, I I don't even, I think it really started to take off post pandemic, which was cool. What was the first Stamptown like though? Was it, were you hosting as you, were you hosting as Jack? So we were there the sound effects did you have regular shoes still at that point? I did. But here's the thing. The the original versions of, okay, the, the first variety shows we did, another cringy name was called the F- Stamptown Presents the Future of Comedy. Mm-hmm. And this was me and Vigo hosting. We did two nights hosting this in the Cow Cafe, which was like, you know, an open public space in Underbelly. Okay. So it wasn't really a build show. That was 2016. In 2017, there was a uh, a venue that we worked with in, in uh, Melbourne called Tuxedo Cat that used to be like, what was the lyric or Elysian or this kind of alternative vibe, but way better on the international scene. But unfortunately, you know, they were just too clowny for their own good and couldn't keep operations up. But they used to run the show called Midnight Madness. And that was like Phil used to do that. And Neil Portenza and Trick V. Wakenshaw and East End Cabaret and Auntie Donna and all these old, you know, the, all these uh, Juan Vesuvius, all these cool like alternative acts that came up before us on the international scene. And, I did it in Adelaide 2016. And then when we went back out there in 2017, me and Vigo started hosting Midnight Madness, but we would more book it. And our buddy Kyle Legacy was the host. It was still the same, you know, beginning of the energy of it. Um, But it started one night when we were just in the venue staying late because we would hang out at the venue every night, smoking weed and drinking beer because that was why it was awesome and also why it didn't last so long. Mm-hmm. And um, we, my brother plays keyboards and our buddy Kyle, who's my favorite comedian, uh, was just it was like 4 a.m. We were just like riffing bullshit. My brother turned the keyboard settings to um, the keys made noise noises of like shooby doobity bop bop bow bop bow. It was like kind of scatting and like mm-hmm. uh, harmonies. And so he was like playing dup doop dup 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 and he was just tagging Kyle's jokes, and we thought it was hilarious. So that was how the show would run. Was Kyle was the host with my brother playing keyboard underneath him we would close the first half and book it but we didn't do it eventually kyle's hosting days were numbered and so then me and vigo would host it and then i only started hosting as tucker because vigo had to leave the fringe early one year for a norwegian contract that he had and i was like well i might as well try something and this was as i was developing post 
watching Neil Hamburger post Tim Heidecker. And I was like, well, stand ups, they wear a suit and they'll have a beer and they use a microphone. So I went on stage with a beer in my hand and I was so nervous that I was shaking and the beer started spilling. And I was like, this is pretty funny. So then I started spilling the beer a little bit more and we kept getting more and more beer and I was dousing myself. And all we had was one joke about the weather channel. And, uh, you know, I just kept telling everyone what a great crowd it was. And I kept faking the bar staff and what an amazing audience and doing all these things. And and that's how, that's how Tucker was really born. That was the first time I ever performed as the earliest version of Tucker. And then at some point you end up with uh, a tall, skinny guy on roller skates and a naked dude with a whip. Yeah. <laughs> who now, who now lights roses out on fire out and whips them out of my butt. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the darndest thing. Um, it's bizarre. Where did, so where did, how did Dylan enter your orbit? So Dylan and Johnny went to high school together. They grew okay. up in Stratford, Ontario in Canada, just outside Toronto. And they were locker buddies because Dylan's last name is Woodley and Johnny's last name is Woolley. So they only met because their lockers were next to each other. And Johnny was working on the school TV show and he knew that Dylan was an animator. And he was like, Hey, I think you'd really like this like school TV. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would, he brought Dylan in and then they started making all these really stupid fucked up school videos that everybody loved. They were super Tim and Eric inspired. And Dylan was making animation for Lego and Ed Sheeran and Coldplay. And he got this amazing job and then went on this huge European trip. And while me and Johnny were at Gullier and we were talking about our future, he was like, I got the guy. I know our film guy is my buddy Dylan. And I eventually met Dylan in 2017 when he just rocked up to our place in Edinburgh. We had four days together. It was a crazy four days. And then we kind of hooked him under the circus from there and took this guy who was this really shy animator who had never been on stage and have turned him into this riding solos, roller skating, burlesque sensation that he's become. And we are all just as baffled as he is. With his own merch. With his own merch that unfortunately dwarfs our sales every single time. (laughs) Okay, so we talked a little bit about this in Scotland last summer, but I want to get you on the record on this. So you're... Your journey with Edinburgh started in 2015. Yes. The Fringe, it feels like its impact on Edinburgh and the cost of living and the cost of performing there has changed so much just in those nine years. Mm -hmm. Is it even possible for a fresh-faced American performer to to go there for their first time now in 2024? And It's hard. You know, it depends. There's a few factors, like... One, I always ask anybody before we produce them, I say, why do you want to go? What What are you hoping to achieve from this? Because if you have the financial flexibility and you're willing to spend money on this, it's an amazing investment to go get really good and build a show and gain some credibility and expand your connections and open up a bunch of doors to the international world. It's, it's basically a marketplace, you know? Um, so for that reason, you can. It's also just, you know, you, you need the right producer. And I, I feel like why we're good producers is I've failed in every single way possible in solo shows, duo shows, group shows, variety shows, and as a producer. So I feel pretty confident that I have the blueprint from messing it up myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also difficult. And I think a lot of Americans go over with, and it's no shade on like the larger production companies, but, you know, they might have the money, but they don't have any clout. And no one's like, wow, a Live Nation show, you know, or like, oh, my God, I can't wait to see what AEG is bringing this year, even though they're great producers. It's just like, you know, it, you just you kind of get the same eight to ten people every type of year and it's just interchangeable. But if you have people who are connected and they have they're a bit more in the DNA of the fringe and have, you know, a bit of a personality or perspective 
that that can lend itself to the audience that's being built over the years. Um, I, I also think it's so much of like, what time are you? What venue are you in? You know, what does your poster look like? What does your blurb look like? How big is your following? You know, where where did you get your advertisements? And most importantly, is your show good? And I feel a lot of Americans have gone over who have profiles and they don't do so well because they're not as funny as they think they are. And that's, I think, because of the way that American audiences are versus UK audiences where American audiences don't like to feel uncomfortable and they don't like to let people hang if it's not so funny. Whereas the UK, if it's not funny, they're not going to laugh. And so you you get better really quickly. And it's a, it's just a different style of humor. And I, I, I love it. But I, I think it's absolutely possible. You, you know, you... And there's all different ways to get there. Like, you know, last year with uh, Martin, Martin's sales early on were not as great, but I knew his show was amazing. And I had always believed in his show. And he ends up leaving with a newcomer nominee. And, you know, he's now touring all over the world and making a special. And then there's the opposite where it's like, you know, Moses has not been there before, but he's got a special and he's got a great show and a really interesting title and a great hook. And he sells out his whole run. And, you know, it's and also gets the critical acclaim. So right. it's possible. Um you just got to, yeah, you just got to be careful. Or you're not being careful. You just have to really, really think about what you want to do and what you're trying to accomplish. Otherwise, you will get hammered and it can really, it can really be tough to recover from. Right. But he also needed a lot of money just to, just to pay for a month of lodging. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing that sucked the hardest is the accommodation has gone up so much since the beginning where, you know, I used to be able to get a room for six to 800 pounds and now a room is like, in something that's walkable to your venue is like 1500 to 1800 pounds, which is psychotic. Yeah. Okay. But now you're in the, you're in the opposite position where you have this act that's very successful in the UK. And now you're trying to figure out how to make him work in old school American comedy club. You talked about recently getting kicked out of the comedy store because your character was so good that the club didn't believe you were supposed to be there. They fully escorted me out because, you know, and to their credit, there's a guy they've never seen before in a dumpy suit with his shirt tucked into his underwear. I have one shoe duct taped to my foot. I have my toes sticking out of my socks. I'm wet and I'm bashing my apples against a brick wall because, you know, you have to soften your apples before you explode them on stage. So it looks funnier. And they didn't know me. And so they fully escorted me out before my set and then fought with me. And we were like, sure, buddy, sure, buddy. And I was in their group chat being like, there's a guy with no shoes with an apple saying that he's doing a 10-minute set in the belly room. And they fully threw me out. And then finally, when they brought me back in, when they realized that, like, the booker was like, what are you doing? This guy's on the show. (laughs) I then had all these people watching me, and I bombed so (laughs) unbelievably hard to the point that I didn't want to do the second show. But thankfully, I did because I did a little bit better. And Natalie Mm -hmm. was there. My friend Natalie was there supporting me. And she then, like heckled in a moment and i was like oh let's play and so she then came on stage as and we did this bit that we've been doing which is really crazy in Stamptown lately and people were just they couldn't believe what they were watching and it ended with her sticking her fingers down my throat and making me throw up on the stage so i was like honestly pretty pretty wild first that was my first time performing as tucker and, and when i performed at the improv earlier in the year they also thought it was real and were really angry with me and were very rude to me and i honestly if it's up to me i would never perform there ever again Wow. Where do you see this whole thing going? Jack, Stamptown, where do you, where would you hope to see it go? I would, I would love to go as, as far as we can. To me, there's Stamptown is, I would love it to be the, a, a fun comedy empire that tours great live shows and it's a brand you can trust to go and see new and exciting and innovative works. 
uh, for the television side of things. I would love to be uh, producing specials that are more uh, akin to the type of stuff that we make and giving them a platform to exist out there. You know, I'd love to be producing and, and pitching and creating our own TV shows to act in, which we're also in the process of. And, you know, I'd love to run my own festival and venues someday and just kind of have this big brand, uh, kind of the way that Tyler Perry or Tyler, the creator have, you know, Tyler Perry has this whole compound in Atlanta that he can offer all these opportunities to people. I would love to be able to do something like that in the way that Tyler, the creator has a fashion company and a festival and he's got a label and he's a respected artist. I would love to be seen in that light would be the dream, but mainly just to perform with my friends and kind of live this Peter Pan lifestyle we've been living well, I can't wait to to see all that come true. Zach, thank you so much. Really thank appreciate this. Thank you so this. much, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.